Welcome everyone to our NCAA Social Series. This is episode number 64. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined this week by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer, as well as Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who is a professor of medicine at Emory University in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Also, this past July 4th, he was one of 34 people, just 34, who received the prestigious honor from the Carnegie Corporation as an immigrant who has contributed mightily to this country and certainly to his field of medicine. And Dr. Carl Carlos Del Rio, I wanna start with you uh, on the Delta variant. Let's first get out the definition because we're hearing this a lot right now about obviously how uh, pervasive it is, how transmissible it is. Uh, and we wanna just sort of take that to the college space here and athletics as we get ready for fall camp that will start for a number of sports here in August. Uh, let's first start with what it is. What is the Delta variant? Well, thank you, Andy. The, you know, as COVID uh, continues to transmit and, and continues to evolve, not only in the U.S., but globally, these viruses, as they're transmitted, they're continuously mutating. And as they mutate, they sometimes produce uh, strains of the virus that are more likely to infect other people, more likely to evade the impact of neutralizing antibodies, such as the antibodies uh, you know, induced by vaccines. And this evolution of the virus over time eventually leads to these variants. And a lot of these variants have received their name. Uh, there are different ways of calling them. And many of them have been named by the, or by the country where they first uh, were identified. Uh, the Delta variant that we're talking about was first identified in India. So, so many people call it the Indian variant. But a few weeks ago, the WHO decided that in order to avoid stigmatizing, they will just call the variants uh, by giving them a Greek letter name. So the alpha variant is, the, is a variant that was identified in the UK. Then there's the beta variant that was identified in, in, in South Africa, the, the gamma delta the variant that was identified in Brazil, and now the delta variant identified in India. This all have different mutations. And the delta variant, what it does is it high, it's highly transmissible. And if you think about it this way, the original variant that we had, you know, just a little bit about a year ago, one infected person infected about two and a half to three other individuals. So what we call the reproductive number was two to two and a half to three. The alpha variant, the UK variant, that number went up to about five. With the delta variant, that number goes to about eight or nine. So one infected person is capable to infect another eight or nine individuals. And by doing so, therefore spreads very rapidly because you think, you know, think about this in terms of, of uh, just exponential growth. One infects nine, nine infect another nine. And before you know it, there's thousands of people infected. This is what happened in India. You had a huge outbreak very, very quickly. Now, the one thing to mention, and we can talk about more later, while the vaccines uh, have a decreased activity, they still have pretty good activity against the Delta variant. So the, the bottom line for everybody is if you're worried about the Delta variant, and if you haven't been vaccinated, you should be worried, you need to get vaccinated as soon as possible. Yeah, that's clear. And I want to get to vaccinations here shortly. But um, what has made this variant um, certainly raise more of a red flag than the previous three that you mentioned? Uh, those, as you said, initially, we, we were referring them as originating in the UK, Brazil, um, and South Africa. As I said, it's simply the, the higher transmissibility. I mean, it burns through a, through a naive population very, very quickly. You know, if you just to give you an idea of the numbers, if the, the original strain, you know, with an R naught of about two and a half, one, one infected person at the end of 10 
cycles has infected about 9,000 individuals, assuming that they're all naive, they, they're not vaccinated, et cetera. The UK variant, that would infect, one person infected would lead to about, after the end, 10 cycles of transmission, would lead to about 42,000 people infected. Well, this one, doing the math, you get over 100,000 people infected. So again, it is just simply how transmissible it is. The exponential growth makes this very, very dangerous because if you haven't been immunized, anybody who hasn't been immunized is likely gonna get infected with a Delta variant. So to that point, and Dr. Hanlon, I wanna to get to you in a moment when we get to the college space, but I just wanna get this sort of as our groundwork, or you know, sort of laying the groundwork here. Um, how much more deadly is the Delta variant than the previous three? Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. Some people say it's not more deadly, but you are going to see more people sick and in the hospital and dead because simply the numbers are higher, right? If you have, if you have a disease like COVID, well, let's say the mortality is one to two percent. Well, if you have a thousand people infected, you know, one to two percent mortality, you know, equals about ten to twenty people that die. But if you have a hundred thousand people infected, that's just a lot more sick people and a lot more dead people simply because of the numbers. So even if it wasn't more deadly because it infects more people, you're going to see more cases, more people hospitalized and more deaths. There's some data from Scotland that there is that it is more deadly and more severe, particularly in people that are older, particularly in people that are that have comorbidities such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, etc. So Dr. Hayline, look, we can just hammer people over the head. It's pretty clear that people should be vaccinated. We know that, and so uh, that is a given, and we, keep, we can keep screaming it from the rooftops, and some people just aren't gonna do it. So now we gotta shift to what life would be like, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And we are clearly seeing, and I will tell you this, I've experienced it uh, at the NBA Draft Combine. Those that were vaccinated could interview players face-to-face, -face. first time I was doing that in 16 months, uh, you know, secondly, uh, you could actually not wear your mask with other vaccinated people, players I'm talking about, coaches, GMs. But there were signs from the NBA that said clearly, if you were unvaccinated, you couldn't do any of that. You had to create huge distance. You had to mask. And basically, you couldn't do your job, uh, at least on my side of the, of the aisle, if you will. And so what would life be like, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, as we get into fall prep in August? Well, it's a good question, Andy. And, and we already have tiptoed into that. You know, we put out a summary socialization document and we clearly differentiated in that document between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And essentially we said for those that are fully vaccinated that they would be living life in, in many ways similar to pre-pandemic. I mean, we're all taking a hopefully enhanced standard precautions um, but they're given much more liberty than the unvaccinated where we're saying, look, we still want you physically distancing and masking when you're, when you're indoors. And it, it, we also, for the summer um, uh, resocialization document, we stated that we probably are no longer going to classify sport according to the risk of transmission. We're really going to be looking at what, what's happening at the population level. So it, what's the degree of risk within that population? Is there a lot of disease that is spreading? And what's the degree of immunity in that population? And that's really how we're going to be guided. But there's still gonna be a clear demarcation between vaccinated and unvaccinated. What's not clear, and we were discussing this 
uh, recently with our last medical advisory group meeting and, and Dr. Del Rio is, is, is part of that, you know, will we still be testing those that are vaccinated? For example, if they present with symptoms, because even though you're well protected as Dr. Del Rio said, um, against hospitalization, uh, serious morbidity, mortality, um, there's still a chance you can develop uh, COVID-19 when you're fully vaccinated. But the chances are very good that we've essentially neutralized this virus. So it's going to be like a mild flu or, or a cold. So, so we're having that debate and, and we haven't landed yet, but, but there will be a demarcation for sure. You know, the other, the other thing, uh, Brian, that we discussed is that given how quick this, this variant is spreading and how quickly it spreads, you know, we may, we may get to the end of the summer and it may kind of already burn out, right? It may, may, may disappear. So I think part of the, the good news is it is spreading so quickly that it's going to either infect people or just move on very, very quickly. And, and now the question is, what's the next variant? What happens next? And we already heard about a new variant called Lambda, which is emerging in Peru. So as long as there's global transmission, we're going to be seeing, you know, new variants emerge globally. And clearly, Dr. Del Rio, um, it's crazy how this has shifted a year ago at this time. The United States was way behind. Uh, obviously, we were leading the world uh, in infections. And now things have flipped. So when we have international students, international athletes that are coming you know, to our space, uh, obviously, there's going to be even more precaution. Uh, what's your thought process on, as at least initially, Brian mentioned testing, as you're gathering these populations together when they get onto campus, whether that's July, August, early September, and the same could happen with the student body, at least a baseline of testing, maybe that first, you don't necessarily quarantine or isolation, but just that testing baseline, even if the requirement at that university is that everyone has to be vaccinated to start in the fall. Well, you know, many, many schools are requiring students to be vaccinated. And what we are doing, for example, uh, at Emory is we have we're either requiring students to get vaccinated or they will then need to be submitted to a testing program of one weekly testing. And a lot of places are doing the similar, a similar thing. Now, if you have been vaccinated, we're not routinely testing you unless you develop symptoms. If you become symptomatic, then we are testing you. But otherwise, we don't routinely test you at this point in time. So, Brian, I'm going to give you a scenario. Um, let's say we've got a football team in the fall and, you know, I'm just going to throw this number. Let's say there's 60 players and 40 are fully vaccinated. The other 20, what could life look like for those other 20 on a daily or weekly basis? Well, the first part of the life, what it would look like is to go all out to try to get those 20 players vaccinated. And, you know, and, 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 and coming back to that, you know, a lot of the student athletes are saying, well, look, you know, if I get COVID or not, if I'm vaccinated or not, the outcome's the same for me. But when they start seeing in that example, that the football players who are fully vaccinated, they have different freedoms that the unvaccinated don't. That is probably what's gonna convince people to get vaccinated more than anything else. But just separating that out, part of the testing also is going to depend on what's happening locally. And, and as Carlos mentioned, and we, we discussed it uh, recently, if, 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 if we are at really a low population risk, so the Delta variant has already done what it has done in, in, in America has moved on, so to speak, and, and there's little transmission, um, you know, there probably would be surveillance testing, but it may even be at the level of when, when someone's developing symptoms. So I think it's going to greatly depend on what's happening at the local level, and there's not going to be this sort of 
general guidance, prescriptive guidance like we had before. Well, and Dr. Del Rio, I mean, clearly at a number of universities where there is a requirement to attend in the fall to be fully vaccinated, and for the most part, maybe faculty and staff as well, it becomes a moot point with the student athlete because they are students. And if every student has to be vaccinated, then they would have as well. How do you handle those that have the exception, whether it's medical or religious, if it's approved, that exception? Again, it's through testing, right? You're gonna to have to be testing individuals like that fairly regularly in order to, to detect if somebody gets infected because they will then be likely to spread to others. And I think you know what we are committed in most uh, campuses is we know we're gonna have cases, we want to prevent outbreaks. Brian, how do you think that'll play out? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and you, you know what, uh, there, there was some disappointment uh, among some administrators when um, we stated, look, we're not going to uh, be classifying sport transmission risk anymore because we really found that it wasn't in the act of playing sport that disease was transmitted. It was more day-to-day -day life. And, and so it's gonna be playing out that, that the unvaccinated will be tested and the testing regimen is going to be developed more according to what's happening locally. So if, 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 if disease risk transmission locally is moderate or high, they'll be on a very regular testing regimen. Well, the other thing too, Dr. Del Rio, I, I, you know, I wonder if, and this happened last year, if you will have some schools maybe be skeptical of potentially playing another school if that other team is not fully vaccinated. And we saw that happen where there might've been a case and you know, um, this happened actually, you know, in the Big Ten where, you know, one school uh, this actually happened between Wisconsin and Penn State where Wisconsin wasn't ready to go to Penn State because Penn State was dealing with a little bit of a mini outbreak. And so they paused, they had to reschedule the game. And, and those kinds of things could happen around the country where you could have one fully vaccinated school and team going against another one that is not. And that team may present a little bit of a pause before they participate in that matchup. Yes, absolutely. That's going to be, uh, that certainly could happen. But but my hope is that even though in places that we have low vaccination rates, you know, when you get down to the, to the nitty gritty, there's still, uh, you know, there may still be enough vaccination to prevent outbreaks. So again, uh, my hope is that between people previously infected and people vaccinated, we will see cases, but we don't, we won't see huge outbreaks. We, we have to recognize that you know, now close to 50% of the country has been vaccinated. And yeah, the good news is that it's 50%. The bad news is that it's 50% not vaccinated. But that decreases significantly the, the capability of the virus to transmit to others, right? If, it, if, if, the, if the, and again, even if the vaccines may not be fully protective, if you have some degree of protection, you're creating barriers against transmission of the virus. So I think the things that we're talking about right now are, are very different than what we talked about a year ago, because with vaccines and with the uptake we've had in vaccines, while not as great as we would like it to see in most places, there is enough uptake that you're gonna have sort of a little bit of a, of a, of a sort of broken, aborted uh, transmission chains happen in multiple places. So we'll see, I mean, my hope is that again, we don't see huge outbreaks and we won't see a tremendous impact on college sports as a result of this variance. So Brian, obviously this summer, we are seeing full capacity crowds at sporting events, uh, even actually this weekend, 
uh, the Euro uh, finals in London, Wembley would be are supposed to be full, same with Wimbledon. Um, so we're going to see it as it moves into our college space, but it will be a little jarring uh, if at the big house, we got 100,000 fans. Um, what do you anticipate at least that initial feeling in the college space when we see these massive you know, congregation of people at Ohio State, Michigan, and Alabama, you know, coming for college football games uh, in the fall. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You know, I mean, we, we, we had a smaller example of that. So in Omaha, um, with, with the College World Series and, and full stadiums, and, and, and we were in regular contact with the Douglas County Public Health Department. And there was no uptick in, in regional spread uh, as a result of the College World Series, which was really gratifying. Of course, it's not 100,000 people. Um, it, it is outdoors, but even the fall football stadiums, they'll be outdoors. So that that also, I, I, I think, is helpful. And and we'll just see. You know, I mean, we this this is the great unknown, right? And um, it, it's interesting. So like at Wimbledon, you mentioned Wimbledon. They're actually part of a pilot program with the government. So the government is really working with them and and tracking how does it how does it really work when you bring together a large group of people in a country that's about sixty percent vaccinated? So, so I think we'll get the data and and that will guide us as we continue to to have large capacity crowds. Brian, if I can, since I have you, um, obviously there was a situation with NC State at the College World Series not able to participate in the other spring championships. There were a couple times, very one, two, and three divisions where some teams were eliminated earlier in the tournaments because of protocols. And we saw this in the tail end of the winter sports with hockey. Um, overall, from maybe March to June, how would you assess the way the championships were run through these sort of latter stages of this phase of the pandemic? Well, I think it was, they were running in an exceptional manner. So, you know, let, with D1 men's and women's basketball with, with Lynn Holzman and Danny Gavitt, I mean, they just did a, a stellar job and, 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 and that, in those two championships, there was only one team um, that, that had to be disqualified because of spread in the team. And then Joni Comstock overseeing the other 65 championships from the, the, the spring and the winter. And out of all of those, there were nine teams that had to be uh, disqualified because of spread within the team. So when you look at that, it really is, is it's, it's a remarkable profile of, 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 of safety and, and, and things that are well coordinated. And the other thing that was really interesting is that there was no documentation of any spread from one team to another team. So it was always isolated pockets that happened within a team. And then they were picked up and then that team was disqualified. They went home and then they, they observed the proper isolation and quarantine. So, so all in all went well. I mean, we, we had our, our bumps and bruises along the way because we were all learning along the way, but, but everyone followed the same protocols and the communication I think was really outstanding. So look at the end of the day, we completed 67 championships safely and, and successfully. And Dr. Del Rio, one other sort of population within these championships that really had their lives upended, like all of us, uh, were officials. I mean, how do you anticipate, you know, these small little groups, these pods, if you will, in these various sports that were traveling, in this case, had to travel separately throughout the course of uh, the season? How, how close to normal for their lives do you think we'll see in the fall and into the winter? Well, you know, again, it, I think if they're, if they're vaccinated, um, it's going to be pretty normal. I think they're going to have no problem and they're going to be just fine. If they're not vaccinated, I think they will have uh, some risks, especially when they go into communities 
that have uh, relatively low vaccination rates. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, going to Missouri right now may be very different than going and playing in, uh, in South Carolina. I mean, simply the community transmission is different. The amount of infection in the community is different. And I think that's going to dictate. So uh, as Brian said, I think what we're going to have to do really is just like you look at the weather report and you say, oh, I probably should take an umbrella because I'm going to travel to X city and it's going to be raining all weekend. I think you're going to have to look at the places like the COVID Act now or many other places that have the local data and say, hmm, I'm traveling to a community that there's a lot of COVID transmission. I probably should take my face mask with me. I probably should you know, not, not be going out to bars and restaurants because it's probably going to be a high-risk activity. While I'm going to another community where there's almost no transmission, well, it's pretty normal to me. So I, I think we're not going to be able to say absolutes for the entire country. I think it's going to be very local. And I think there's enough resources out there for people to, to you know, as I said, just like you look at the weather, you, you make decisions based on that. I think you're going to make a lot of decisions based on, based on local transmission, local, uh, how much immunization is in that, in that community, how much viral transmission in that community, which viruses are prevalent, and all that information is now readily available for people to look at. All right, last two things from both of you. First, from Dr. Del Rio, um, you know, my son's high school, as they're breaking down the fiberglass or plexiglass, excuse me, and then, you know, the signage and all that, I had an interesting conversation with one of the administrators who said basically like, well, we don't want to throw them out because we don't know. So we're going to find some storage. So what's your advice for all these universities across the country that had to basically spend money to outfit their schools for health and safety protocols as they now enter this next phase uh, where we think we're obviously in a much better place, but at the same time, can't necessarily uh, dispose of all these things that we may need at some point. Well, you know, I think we've learned a lot of things during the last year. I think we've learned, obviously, the, the most effective method is called vaccines. The second most effective is called face masks. The third most effective is called hand washing, hand hygiene. So uh, I think plexiglass uh, barriers are probably not useful. They're, they're nice, you know, barrier to have, but I, they don't think, I don't think they're that effective in preventing COVID. I think it's more effective to have two people masked. I, I would encourage universities and places to continue having hand sanitizer. I think a lot of hand sanitizer is not only good for COVID, but it's good for many other things. Uh, but I think we need to really look at how we're using our resources. And again, at the end of the day, I think if you focus on hand sanitizers, masking, and vaccinations, you're going to be fine. So I think this is a great point. I want you to end with it, Brian, is that I hope, my hope is that we are in a better place hygiene-wise going forward. And we've seen this, Brian, you know this, there's been a lot of transmission of various illnesses within locker rooms because of poor hygiene. Uh, you know, and it can be very serious at times, uh, whether it's, you know, whatever kind of bacteria that can fester in that locker room setting. What do you hope will be a positive outcome of this in terms of sustaining proper hygiene in those close contact areas in locker rooms, shower facilities, weight rooms that we hope will stay going forward to prevent mass flu, IG issues, and so on. Yeah, I think it, 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 it comes down to enhanced standard precautions. So what happened with the AIDS epidemic is we moved to what are called universal precautions. And we assume that all blood is potentially infectious and we handle it a certain way. And it's been remarkably effective. So to your point, the enhanced standard precautions, you know, with shared equipment, you wipe it down. With shared tables, you're, you're careful. The wrestlers are very good at this, you know, skin infections, passing that on, you know, 
how, how are we really looking at what we are and, and if we have an active skin infection or if we have a respiratory infection, we don't show up to work. We don't show up to the athletic contest. And so I think the standard precautions that are, you know, should be in place are gonna be much better. And between people not coming to work or coming to athletics when they are feeling a little sick and really making certain that we're taking care of shared equipment a little bit better, I think we'll, we'll be in a much better place. And I have a feeling it's gonna be here to stay. And I'll tell you, Dr. Del Rio, in the fall, the next wave of us trying to, you know, hopefully influence people to practice good health protocols is get your flu shot uh, when that comes out in October, November um, to keep the flu obviously down now that we've had the vaccine. Look, as always, I learn a lot. I love these conversations because I think they're highly uh, intelligent, of course, with the two of you, educational, informative. And I hope everyone watching really takes this in because we're close and we got to just continue this down to the end and get everyone vaccinated so we can get on the other side of obviously now this Delta variant. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, congratulations on your honor on July 4th. As always, appreciate your time here on our NCAA social series. And of course, Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA chief medical officer. All right, so that'll wrap up this episode, episode number 64 in our series. As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where they are all archived. You can check them all out from one to 64. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for watching everyone.